Hello, and welcome to Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. I'm your host, Inman Narwin, and I use they, them pronouns. Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness is a collectively run publisher dedicated to producing and curating inclusive and intersectional culture informed by anarchistic ideals. On this podcast, we have audio versions of our monthly featured zine, read by a brilliant voice actor, along with interviews with the author. We also make these really cool little quarter-sized zines of the monthly feature, which you can get mailed to you anywhere in the world if you sign up for our Zine of the Month Club on our Patreon. But you can also read along for free on our website, tangledwilderness.org. This month, we have something very whimsical. We have an essay by Ami Weintraub called Releasing the Land. It's the first chapter in his up-and-coming book, To the Ghosts Who Are Still Living, which is out for pre-order on our website right now. In this collection of remarkable essays, Ami Weintraub guides us on a journey to meet the ghosts of his Jewish ancestors, a people whose struggle and story sometimes whisper and sometimes scream to be shared. Ami examines challenging questions of heartbreak, memory, restitution, and self-discovery, Stick around after the essay for a really fun interview with Ami. The words of the month this month have an eerie synchronicity. Releasing the Land by Amy Weintraub Narrated by Bee Flowers and published by Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness The following is an essay from To the Ghosts Who Are Still Living by Amy Weintraub, available for pre-order July 1st, 2023 at tangledwilderness.org. You can learn more about Amy's work at amyweintraub.com. That's A-M-I-W-E-I-N-T-R-A-U-B.com. Quote, Amy Weintraub's essays are a brilliant meditation on both the generational trauma and resiliency that underscores our struggle to survive in a world not built for us. Lyrical, insightful, and heartbreaking, Weintraub is a powerful voice for the radical nature of memory and healing. Shane Burley Releasing the Land My great-grandmother's cemetery is now a soccer field. My great-grandfather's synagogue is now a Baptist church. My great-uncle's home is now a police station. And I live in Pittsburgh, far from these lands where my family no longer exists. Where are you from? Behind my great-grandmother's synagogue in Klementov, Poland, was a Jewish graveyard. Humble gravestones marked where my ancestors buried the people they loved— In the 1900s, pogroms and war and poverty pushed my family from their small town in Poland. My great-grandmother, Anna, was three when her family moved to Argentina, and 12 when they later left for New York. Her parents couldn't afford to take all of their children, so they left a young son behind in Poland for his grandparents to raise. In Argentina, Anna ran through the hills with a baby sister and a colorful parrot, In New York, she wandered barefoot through the bustling streets, laughing in Yiddish with the women who spoke German. The family lived in the crowded Lower East Side with the many Jews who had left synagogues and graveyards and lands they hoped would remember them. It was there that Anna gave birth to my grandfather, David. That was the life they lived, but there was also death. Anna's baby sister died in Argentina. Her pet parrot was struck by lightning. 
Her older brother joined them when they moved to New York and screamed like hell for all of the years he had been left behind. While Anna was pregnant with my grandfather, her husband died suddenly. She named my grandfather David after the man he would never meet. There are so many details I leave behind in this retelling, but I try to remember the joys and the loves she buried in these new lands so far from the small town in southern Poland. No one told me the name of this place in Poland, where my family first lived and died and buried their loved ones. I heard of the town in a letter, written by Anna, tucked into a blue box at the top of my father's closet. It fell off its high shelf one morning when I was rummaging through clothes with my mother. Klementov, written in Anna's handwriting. There are no more Jews there. I have no more family there. But I found a fourth cousin online who went back to Klementov. He taught himself Polish and wandered through the countryside, sneaking into archives and taking pictures of records when the librarian's back was turned. People looked at him funny, and sometimes with fear, when he said he was Jewish. But he continued. After years, he pieced together the marriage dates and birth certificates to make a family tree. Its roots stretched back to the 1700s. We were from there. We talk on Zoom, and he tells me the tales of Klementov. Centuries ago, there was a giant castle outside the city. The royalty built the palace as a perfect oval. Above the living room and dining hall, they suspended a giant glass ceiling. They filled it with gallons of water and hundreds of flashing, colorful fish. They ruled the land under a sea of their own creation. Were we the kings and queens? I ask, dreaming of shadows of sharks and stingrays falling over my dinner plate. Of course not, he laughs. But the story lets me imagine a life of fantasy and ease. I remember, I came from a land where beautiful fish swam through the sky. I am from this place of left-behind boys, man-made oceans, people who fled, cousins who returned. I am from this place where only a synagogue and a cemetery remember me. Home, the sanctuary and burial ground say. Meet me in the words of the Torah, in the bones of your ancestors. Return to this place. On September 6th, 2018, the Polish government held a ribbon-cutting ceremony atop my family's cemetery. They had just finished building a sports complex here, on our graveyard in Klementov. On the day of the ribbon-cutting ceremony, people busied themselves pinning pale yellow and pink balloons onto bright white goalposts. A man in his 80s wearing a suit and shiny black shoes cleared his throat. With an outstretched arm, he welcomed in a gaggle of children in white dresses and pressed shirts. They gathered around a microphone to give speeches in a language I do not understand. The townspeople recounted the dirt they tilled, the basketball hoops they built. They cut a ribbon. They kicked a ball into the goal. They thanked the Polish government, who paid $90,000 to make this project possible. Today, children dribble and shoot and howl with laughter atop my family's bones. They move in the rhythms of their parents. Their dads teach them to pull their foot back and kick the soccer ball as hard as they can. Their parents cheer as the children sprint past. The kids learn what their parents teach them. 
Their parents teach what their parents taught them. The children know this is a cemetery for people who no longer live there. They saw the gravestones peeking out of the ground like broken teeth scattered in a dark mouth. They grew up waving to their daddies who sat atop bulldozers, leveling the tombs. After school, the children would sift through the dirt, finding chunks of rocks etched with letters that looked like the bodies of smashed ants. Their moms invited them to build a small white fence around the three remaining gravestones. Who's buried here? The children asked. But the women didn't hear the question. On September 6th, 2018, the children played on the field they helped their parents build. These children witnessed the land finally changing hands. With pink balloons and shiny basketball hoops, the land that remembers me passed from my ancestors' bodies to the kids wearing white dresses and press shirts. The next generation in Klementov will only know of my family and this graveyard as a story. They will learn it from the kids who play soccer on a brand new field. Where am I from? Can I even say I am from there? I ask my fourth cousin. It's been so long. I hear him slam his hands on the table over the phone. Do you feel like you are from there? He asks me. Yes. Then you are. You are from there. You are from there. In his words is the hope that our lands won't be lost forever. He still talks about buying the remaining synagogue, turning it into a community center, teaching the kids in Klementov to be artists and actors. Instead, the children learn to play soccer on a brand new sports field. Who will tell the story of this small cemetery in southern Poland? So many have already told me it's been too long, too far. Move on now. Stop remembering now. Just be like us, they say. The ones who learned how to forget. I've spent so long teaching myself to remember. So I write this to the ghosts who are still living with me. You may be the only ones who believe this story. We tell it together. You, creating my body from all that you lived through. Me, writing down the memories you share. I want the land to remember me and tell our story. Until then, I turn these words into a mirror so we can behold ourselves more clearly. My great-grandmother's synagogue still stands next to the new sports complex. It is a large white building with a triangle roof and steep steps that lead to its front door. My fourth cousin tells me about a man who sneaks into the building to sell my great-grandma's candlesticks to tourists. He stands on the steps of the temple, throws off the broken lock on the front door, and wanders into the empty sanctuary. He looks for the menorahs my great-grandmother lit with her mother, the yad her father used to read Torah. Treasures for me and for him. I imagine prayer books tucked neatly in the backs of each seat, or maybe they are strewn in a corner under the crumbling ceiling. Their pages are dog-eared and words underlined. I'm coming right back, they seem to say. Wait here a while. The man grabs the sidereum in his thick fingers. Dust flies into the air, and he coughs as he opens the molded overcovers. In one version of this imagining, the prayer books have been sitting in the backs of each seat for decades, 
ready for a mignon to pick up where they left off. In another, they have been covered in rubble, waiting for someone to find them. He laughs at the mangled black letters lining the pages. They look like smashed ants, dying over and over in new formations. Treasures for me and for him. He arranges the objects he collects in the front room of his house. He calls it a museum. Tourists turn the items over in their hands, running their fingers along the ornate decorations. They smile at the beautiful things and pay him 10 zlot, 20 zlot for the menorahs, the yods, the prayer books. This is how they remember us. They pack the remains of my family into their bags. The children play, the man makes a living. The destruction is still happening, in present tense. I wake up from a dream and hear you wailing. You remember the people who pried our fingers from the grounds that know us? But how do I return? When I live in Pittsburgh, far from these lands where my family no longer exists. Where are you from? And we're back. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us today. Um, we just listened to Releasing the Land from your up-and-coming book to the ghosts who are still living. Um, would you like to introduce yourself with your name, pronouns, and just a little bit about what you do in the world? Yeah, and thank you for having me. I'm excited and nervous to be talking about this book. Um, but it's, yeah, really exciting to think about this work going out into the world. Um, I'm Ami Weintraub, and I use he and they pronouns. Right now, I'm um, in rabbinical school at the Aleph Ordination Program, which is part of the Renewal Movement. And I'll say I'm involved in um, a lot of like Jewish anarchist projects, um, and this book is coming out of a lot of that work cool cool well we're all very excited for uh more people to get to read um your incredible book that um that i'm gonna be honest and say that i like immediately cried while reading and i'm excited for more people to get to uh cry to your words (laughs) (laughs) it's a little emotional uh release that's what i'm trying to give people i guess it's emotional beating up (laughs) Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm glad um, that you liked it. Thank or thank thank you for writing it. Um, um, and so that that essay that we just listened to, releasing the land, uh, that is the first. That's like the intro chapter to the book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first chapter of the book. Um, would you want to? I know we just listened to it, but would you want to kind of briefly tell us what did we just listen to? Yeah. So this first essay um, is kind of like setting up the, setting the scene, setting the premise, like bringing in some of the big questions that I start to explore throughout the book. Primarily, it's an exploration of this repetitive question, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? Um, And really thinking about that, like in this like 
specifically like Jewish Ashkenazi perspective of kind of being told we're from this place that we don't really want to talk about anymore and we can't really go back to. We're kind of like from America, but we're not from America. (laughs) You feel comfortable here, but you're not really fully comfortable here. And really trying to like get into the core of this question of like, where are we from? Like what lands remember us? Where, what are like the physical remnants of um, my family's existence in this world? Um, And I think, yeah, like adding on top of that, like questions of like borders, like a lot of times people say, oh, like, where's your family from? And it's like, well, at one point it was Poland, another point it was Ukraine, another point it was, and so really like having this ability to say like, no, I'm from like this tiny patch of land right here with the cemetery and the synagogue um, and yeah, and exploring like what does that feel like to not have ever been to those places to like not be able to say like I'm from there to have that be more of a question and this idea of like ongoing destruction of Jewish life in places where Jews don't necessarily live anymore but how is our memory and our like connection to those places being continuously being um, frayed or purposely uh, removed Um, and what does that feel like as like a third generation American to know that this destruction, as I say in the essay, that destruction is still happening. And that's not just a question that like my great grandparents had to deal with. It's a question that I still have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so normally I like to kind of ask people kind of like what the underlying story is in the story that they've, that they've told. I think maybe a more appropriate question for for this piece um, and for the book in general is, um, what's the story behind finding this story? Like, how did mm-hmm. how did this go from kind of like a uh, something you were thinking about to the book that we uh, have now? Yeah, my mind has seen all of these moments when like the book started to form that I didn't realize the book was forming, but now I can look back and be like, oh yeah, that was a moment when the book was starting to form. I think, so there's an essay in the book called Silent Rage, and that was one of the very first pieces that I wrote. I wrote it um, because my friend Ben Case was editing um, an issue of Tikkun Magazine and asked me if I could write something sort of about this question of like Jewish relationship to colonial uh, theory and decolonized decolonial theory. Um, in the essay, I talk about um, being 19 and at a college party and I'm like throwing up in a toilet, just like screaming, um, can you believe this happened? Can you believe this happened? And that feels like the moment of my recognition of this ancestral pain and um, memory, like really being part of my life. Um and it's kind of a ridiculous story. I it was my first year in college and I was going to go out to this party with some friends and I decided to read Slaughterhouse 5 before <laughs> I go to this party. <laughs> okay. So everyone's like whenever I say this people are like, "All right, you have a weird pregame." <laughs> <laughs> so like yeah. I, I was reading this book like this it's about like um 
being in Dresden during World War II and the fire bombings. Um, this like short, this book by Kurt Vonnegut, and it was just like this moment when like it all clicked, and I kind of feel like I went from like this childhood phase of being like, oh, I know these really horrible things have happened um, to like Jewish people to just people generally in the world to people in World War II specifically was what I was thinking about. But it felt like it was a story. And then in that moment of yeah, reading this book and then being drunk, um, it felt like it changed from a story to like a true reality of like a memory and a grief that I was carrying that I didn't realize. Um, and that kind of opened up, I think, this path of trying to be with that grief and the honesty of it and the need of my ancestors to to not ignore it yeah yeah and so that that kind of spurned writing that first essay and then from there were you like now I'm gonna write a book or was it like more essays or how did how did that kind of develop from there yeah from there I guess I've always used writing as like an outlet for myself to um, process things that were happening in the world and in my life. So yeah, then a number of like pretty serious things started happening. Like um, then I started just writing in response to it and Mm -hmm. I was just collecting these essays. So yeah, like I wrote um, after like the tree of life synagogue shooting, I just started writing just things that I was feeling, thinking, noticing. And then that ended up turning into like the an essay in um, Cindy Milstein's book, which I think is The Whole of a Broken Heart. And then in the summer of 2020, um, there was a lot of like alt-right, like neo-Nazi activity in Pittsburgh. And I started writing about that. There was just like a day where I was also feeling a lot of frustration and anger because I just felt like there, like my life was feeling so um, impacted by the rise of anti-Semitism in the U.S. And it just felt like, is anyone seeing this? Is anyone like understanding like where this is coming from? These connections, like that this isn't like an isolated moment, and like it brings me back to like this part of my ancestors' life. And like, how are we gonna like organize and build around this? And like, how am I gonna like keep myself safe? You know. And I was just like, oh, like someone needs to write something about this. <laughs> um, a lot of people yeah. have too, but it was just kind of that feeling of like, okay, I need to, I need to communicate what I'm feeling to other people so that we can have these conversations about like, what does fascism feel like in the Jewish community? Like what does being in the U.S. feel like for a large number of Jews right now, or at least for me? Yeah, I was on the phone with my therapist and I was like, all right, I think I have to write a book and she was like yeah <laughs> yeah so then, that's yeah <laughs> that's a great great therapist yeah <laughs> and there's there's more like moments of that along the way too but I think that's like the biggest parts yeah it's 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 clear in the book that it I feel like it's a little rude to talk to our listeners about this book that they can't read but <laughs> I just really want to build some fervor for it and people will be able to read it soon. But you know, there there are these there are these essays that you have kind of that feel slightly separate that are like like that are 
it seems like things you were writing before this or things written for like specific pieces, but then you have this really nice like framing like narrative to tie it all together. And I was wondering if you kind of wanted to talk a little bit about like building that structure and like what, uh, what kind of like central themes run through it. Yeah, I guess I can just sort of share like the structure of the book. Yeah, um, totally. That might help. So it's a collection of essays and broken into three sections. And the first section is largely like essays about my ancestors. And then the second section is like essays about my life living in Pittsburgh, kind of like a little bit before like the Tree of Life shooting, but then like kind of the aftermath of that, but not just that, also like other instances of like anti-Semitism that just became kind of normal in that setting. And then the third section of the book is about like returning to um, Lithuania, to one of my ancestors' shuttles and to Berlin and just sort of exploring like what does it feel like to be here? I feel like one of the big themes that ended up coming out for me in the book was being with beauty amidst pain. And that kind of came up in a lot of ways of like going back to my ancestors' shuttle and like being with this land that I kind of like imagined and thought of. And it's beautiful. And like, I kind of repeat that a lot. Like it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's like drenched in this pain of like my ancestors lived here and they were killed, and uh, we don't live here. But this land is beautiful, but being here with my family now is beautiful. And so it's like, how do we hold all of these layers of an experience? And I think that also comes through, like, yeah, so the, the book is called To the Ghosts Who Are Still Living. And another big theme of the book is exploring the unseen world and Again, like the layers of reality, the layers of experience of great, like I'm here in on the street in Pittsburgh, but like the ghosts of my ancestors are here with me. And throughout the book, like the ghosts are like active agents in the story or are like communicating and speaking and their presence is a layer of reality um, and they want to be seen and... I think that was a big theme of the book too, is like how to make the unseen seen again um, and how to bring these voices of um, people who didn't get to say these stories and tell about their lives, um, how to like help them be heard again. Yeah. I love even in the first chapter, how you do that kind of like splitting the narrative in these ways where there's still like moments where I'm like, I don't know who's speaking right now and it doesn't really matter. And just kind of like switching through these different voices. Yeah. It was really, <laughs> it was really, it was really fun to read the narrative like that. That's kind of how like the stories feel to me. Like there's somewhere I'm like, this doesn't feel like my voice. Like this feels like an ancestor wrote this and I just like happened to have the pen and paper and they like wrote it through my hand and I read back and I'm like, oh, that's a cool story. Like nice job, ancestor. <laughs> nice ghost. Like, <laughs> And so in a weird way, it feels almost like a collaborative piece between like me and these ghosts. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, there's definitely some essays that I read back on that I'm like, that doesn't feel like mine. Uh, I really like that about this book. Yeah. Um, w would you say that you did a little bit of ghost writing? <laughs> a lot of bit of ghostwriting. <laughs> cool. Great. Great, great. 
I'm so something that I'm super curious about. I I really love I love memoir and um, I guess maybe that's a question. Would you would you describe this piece as as a memoir? Would you like what? How would what would you call it in terms of like its taxonomical placement in in literature? Yeah, I guess like technically it is memoir. I just don't feel um, <laughs> qualified. Like I've lived a life that I should memoirize it yet. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And in some ways, it's funny to write a memoir where like the whole first section of the book like isn't about me necessarily it's about my ancestors um so I think I've been describing the book more as magical realism even though I know that falls more in like the realm of fiction mm-hmm. it feels like it's memoir that's also infused with like the spirit of magical realism as well yeah yeah which <laughs> is my favorite weird subgenre of story <laughs> I, love I love it so much yeah <laughs> um and maybe maybe that kind of is fitting then too that like when I read it I think about it as being memoir because and not not that I'm saying you wrote a memoir but in the sense of like why it feels like that when I read it is because it it doesn't it doesn't seem to matter whether it's it's like you're writing about your ancestors you're writing about people's experiences who aren't you but it seems like a big point of it is to tie those things together like the past, the present, and the future. They're like it's it's like a it's like a collective memoir or like an ancestral memoir of like past and current entity. And yeah, yeah I don't know. That's 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 how I've been thinking about it when I've been reading it. I mean, I don't know if that resonates or not. Yeah, I really like that frame. Yeah, I think brings up this question of like also like what is the self? Like when I like write a memoir about myself like how can I not start with like my great-grandparents who lived in Lithuania Um, yeah and I've been reading lots of books about mushrooms lately (laughs) and excited kind of about I think it's lichen that they it's like an organism that is always like a composite of other organisms Mm -hmm. um and like ourselves too like we have like a microbiome inside of ourselves that's like other organisms that like make us who we are so, like, this idea of, like, the self being, like, from when I was born until I die, and that is myself. I like this idea of, like, breaking that down, perhaps, and being like, oh, yeah, it is a memoir. And, of course, like, myself breaks down and expands and, like, includes all of these weavings and collages of people and places. Um, so maybe that's what it is. Yeah, that that is really cool to think about. <laughs> In... I want to go off on like a million tangents, but I want to remember this question before before I lose it. Um, but let's get back to lichens and other images in a moment. Um, what feels, what, I guess like, can you explain when you say like that it is magical realism? Like what, like what kind of elements have you like woven into the narrative that feel like that? Yeah, trying to answer this question it's like there's a big answer then there's a small answer um yeah yeah (laughs) so the big answer is that's like one of the projects I'm personally working on in my life is like enchanting the world enchanting my life enchanting Judaism enchanting anarchism like bringing out and making seen like the magic that is here with us and a lot of this process of the book also was me like 
coming to terms with like my own intuition and my own ability to actually really like talk to ghosts and <laughs> be in their company and hear their stories. So like the first question you asked, like how did I even like write this book? Like yeah. some of it and like why, like I had like this ancestor named Alexander Weintraub who I found on Wikipedia. And as soon as I like saw, read his name, the light started like flickering in my room. <laughs> cool. And yeah. And then I started like reading more about him and he was like a leftist writer in Lvov, um, which is now Ukraine and was like jailed for being a leftist and then was ultimately like killed um, by the Nazis for being Jewish. And I started to just like, feel his story like come through my body and write down I was just writing and writing like his story and at the end of it I just like felt him say to me like you're gonna write a book like you're gonna write this thing and I was like no that sounds really hard I don't want to do that (laughs) and I like totally forgot about that and I was just like whatever and then like here's this book so a lot of like some of the essays like are like actual communications with my ancestors and some of them are like imagined like what if there was like what if I can like pull out the ghost that's here right now and a lot of like the magical realism too is like the depth of relationship to the land and to the trees and um, also like honoring like the voice that like the land has and bringing that into existence so yeah if uh yeah, just a lot of like, it just was a very magical process to write this. And I hope that it, it helps people start to like talk about their own experiences with ghosts um, or start to like open up to the reality and the possibility of that. And that, that kind of gets into kind of like an, or I guess another piece of this question, which is um, I'm curious both from, you've talked a little bit about, God, well, sorry, what was the phrase you used? Like pulling the ghosts out of it. Is that what you said? Yeah, I don't want to about like that. How how did you find these stories? How did you or how a... did you connect this history? How did like the how did you find the the history, the narratives, the stories, the ghosts? However, that, that's like another theme in the book. I think is like I don't hide the method of finding the stories. Like I talk about like. Google searching and going on YouTube and um, kind of like the technology that was behind this search. Cause I also want to like demystify that process and be like, Hey, like you can Google like the town your family's from and maybe find a lot of information and like try it, see what happens if you go on Facebook and type your family's last name (laughs) before they came to America and see what that reveals for you, you know? Um, so I feel like that is one part of it. And then, um, and then the other part is just like talking to older family members and recording their stories and, you know, really like listening to what they were telling me. A third part is just, is like this, like kind of mystery is all I can say. Um, (laughs) like I met a fourth cousin on a Jewish genealogy site, which is like, wild (laughs) and then he helped me like connect to a lot of this history and then 
a letter from my grandma fell off of a shelf and my great grandma fell off the shelf that like no one had read in like so many years. And it just so happened to fall off the shelf at this exact moment that we were searching for her history. Um, Yeah. And and, like my fourth cousin talks about this a lot that he's like, I like, do you ever write about like the ancestral work you've been doing? And he's like, honestly, if I wrote about it, no one would believe me because there's all of these moments of like bizarre serendipity that have been happening. And so I feel like that's like the mystery part too, where it's like, yeah, I did a lot of Google searching. I did a lot of like reaching out to family and somehow also a lot just opened up on its own accord. Um, And I did a lot of like meditating and um, like work with, there's a really amazing um, ancestral healer like person right now in the world named Dr. Rabbi Teresa Firestone. And she runs a course on like ancestral healing. um, And she has a lot of skills and tools for like how to do that in the more like spiritual plane as well. That's just wild. I don't know. Like some of the like these these like instances of like like letters falling or like lights flickering. Like that's I don't yeah, I just love it. I love it so much. Um Yeah. <laughs> did did any did anything else like do you have any other like moments of like like th- like those kinds of moments in the process? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Do you want to do you want to share? It? You, you don't have to, but I'm so curious. Yeah, let me think of what I would want to share. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, one funny it's not as like dramatic or something, but so this trip back to Lithuania that I ended up taking um I ended up like texting this cousin of mine who lives in Belgium but his dad still lives in Lithuania. And I was like, Hey, like I'm just, just happened to have this random weekend in August where I'm maybe can come to Lithuania and, and I don't like travel to Europe that often. Um, And he was like, Oh, I'm already planning on going to Lithuania that exact weekend. And then my sister also called me and was like, Hey, like I'm planning to go to Europe like this exact week. And she also doesn't travel that often, like in that way. And it was that exact same time. So it kind of felt like, yeah, a lot was just aligning very quickly in that way. Oh, like another story that I tell, um, I've spent like a lot of time collecting these little buckeye nuts, which are kind of like chestnuts. <laughs> and my friend first showed them to me and then I started collecting them and just like giving them to people and like using them to like rub my muscles and everyone's like that's kind of weird why are you doing that (laughs) (laughs) and then um when we go back to the shuttle um outside my great-grandfather's house on the grounds all around the house are tons and tons of buckeyes (laughs) whoa so like i'd been like collecting all of these buckeyes and these things and that just so happens to be the exact like seed or nut that's like outside of his house and there were a few moments of that too of like I had like my mom had embroidered um I'd asked her to embroider a hollow cover with forget-me-nots and next to like the lake in Bichet this was before I went to the shuttle and then when we got to the shuttle growing right next to the lake were all of these forget-me-nots like that type of stuff yeah let's like to put it lightly but then there's like more intense moments of like really just having ghosts be in the room with me that I'm like, cool. 
we're doing this. <laughs> cool. And That's... I'm a little scared sometimes, but it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not going to get it and in, get into it on this podcast, but. Um, I love hearing about these things. One, because I love stories. I love narratives. I love magical realism and the magic in our real lives. And um, I lived in a haunted warehouse once. And ha- haunted meant in a, in a glorious kind of way for for another time. Um, oh, yeah. So I'm just, yeah, <laughs> just like, really, relating really heavily to the like hearing about all of these moments. And yeah, that's... That's really incredible. Um, and just oh, one more thing on that. Also, just oh, yeah, please, like, that's please. like one of my like I'm talking about this pretty casually and like obviously with a little bit of like laughter in my voice. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also like taken me like this book is also like the process of me like coming to terms with the reality of like ghosts are real. Like there's an unseen world that is actually like part of our lives and growing up in this type of like American culture, like whatever that means, (laughs) the type of American culture I grew up in that really like doesn't have space for that. Um, And then being confronted with the reality of that to the point where it's like, I cannot ignore that this is happening um, Mm -hmm. was like a really challenging process. And I'm hoping that by being more open about my experiences, um, yeah, it can bring out, um like more community and conversation around the magic and the ghosts that are here with us so yeah i appreciate you relating to that also yeah yeah so to to talk a little bit more about i guess some of the some of the images in the book um you talk a lot about trees and uh specifically birch trees and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like the significance of of birch trees or or the the roles of the trees throughout the book yeah i love trees um (laughs) the trees are kind of the star of the show i would say like i feel like yeah just as like the ghosts are writing the story like the trees are also very much writing the story um the book kind of ends with this question of like how did the trees know all this would happen before mm. it happened um I don't remember like exactly how like what came first or second but I've felt like a very strong like imagery of trees being this place where a lot of like spiritual energy is held and then I started to see that reflected in like other Jewish texts of like um there's like a and this is a lot across a lot of cultures there's like an idea that like trees are where souls return to after people die and they're also like where souls come from to be born um and you know a lot of cultures have like the tree of life and there's just a lot of potency around trees um and so the birch tree specifically i started to connect to because um i learned that my family's name before coming to the U.S. was Bershnitsky, which means birch tree. That's like one of the possible meanings. Cool. Um, in Lithuanian. And then when my great-grandfather and his brother came to the U.S., they changed their name to Leventhal, which I didn't realize, but meant means birch tree in Hebrew. And they changed their name because they were like scared of, they were dodging the Russian draft um, mm-hmm. and 
they were scared that the Russians would find them in the U.S. if they didn't change their name. So just this, this like recognition that like this tree was important enough to my family that they wouldn't just like choose any random name. They would like retain that meaning. Yeah. Um, and then I really started to feel like the trees were um, reaching out to me and connecting me and like holding me and trying to like remind me of like there's a place that I was from before my family was in the U.S. So I felt like they were like pulling me back in a lot of ways. And then like a few years after kind of like developing this relationship with birch trees, I learned from Dory Midnight, um, who's a Jewish uh, witch and herbalist, that um, birch trees in Jewish plant magic traditionally have been trees of ancestral, have been symbols of ancestral healing um, because like the eyes on the tree is like your ancestors like watching you and protecting you and being with you. So once I like saw that picture, I was like, oh, this isn't, I'm not just being randomly drawn to birch trees. Like if I'm like opening up to like this ancestral wisdom, like there's also a reason why like these trees are calling to me right now as I'm doing this work. Yeah. I am wondering if we, we talked a little bit about this off air and I was wondering if you wanted to talk about, um, I, I asked you if, because uh, I wanted to do some pre-research and so I was like I was like okay obviously birch trees have like a very particular place within um, within like Jewish is mysticism an okay word to use or is there better sure. better words to use cool. and I found this really amazing story that I was like oh surely Ami knows this but um, it turns out you didn't know it but um, you had some you had some interesting stories about about birch trees and I'm wondering if you could relay them before I tell the story and um, sure. lis- listeners um, I have not told Ami the story and it is I think that he's really gonna love it especially with a lot of the other stuff that we've talked about <laughs> I'm very excited <laughs> um, yeah so something interesting that started happening so one of the essays um, the essay where I like enter into the trees um, and kind of like become like one with the trees in a way um, that felt like also a moment that that essay felt like more of like a channeled experience that I just sort of like wrote and didn't come up with myself. And then I started talking to someone who has like intuitive abilities and they started telling me about like this intuitive channeling or like image that came to them of like entering into a tree and having this type of like yeah like recognition of like souls being in the trees and this a very similar like image to what I had and then I was reading um the under Torah by um Rabbi Jill Hammer which is like a book of dreams and in the book she starts to describe someone's dream and the person has like almost the exact same dream of like entering into the tree and like becoming one with the tree that really made me start to feel like there is this like place we're all going or there is this like common imagery imagery like lexicon that we have that's like accessible to us as humans if we can tap into it um but yeah it leaves me feeling a little like eerie yeah yeah um well that is that is so incredibly fitting for this story um (laughs) I'm so excited. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Me too. I love weird, like uh, I feel like calling them coincidences isn't quite the right way, but um, synchronicities. I love yeah. finding really fun synchronicities. Um, but in trying to figure out more about birch trees before this interview, which I felt pretty nervous about because it's a subject matter that I feel less familiar with in a lot of things. Um, I found this really wonderful story of, and you know, obvious, this is, this is a sad story, but I promise that it has a happy ending um, for some people. During the Holocaust, um, Jakob Silberstein was, who was born in uh, Ripon, Poland, was um, sent to, sent to Auschwitz. And um, after getting moved from Auschwitz um, to where a lot of people believed that they were going to be killed. Um, They were on a train and him and three other people that he was with had this moment where the guards on the train were like, they were drunk and half asleep. And so they jumped off the train because the, the, the door was open thinking, you know, they were like, train's going fast. We might die, but we're certainly going to die if we stay on the train. So they jumped off the train and they all ended up surviving getting off the train and they found their way to do not know how to pronounce people's names, but um, Jana Sadova's house. And this was a farm. They stayed there for a while. And the whole time um, that they were there, uh, Jakob noticed this, uh, like some, he was like, doing some yard work, garden work, something. And there's this big birch tree in on the farm. He notices a rabbit like jump into the birch tree. Like it just disappears. And he's like, what is going on? (laughs) And so he goes behind it and he finds this huge crack in the birch tree. And the birch tree is hollow on the inside. And Jakob says, he goes and gets an ax and he starts chopping into the tree to make the crack bigger because he was like that's a really good hiding place and I feel certain that I'm going to need to hide again and so he makes it big enough the hole big enough to where he can like get into it and then like cover it with leaves and like it's invisible sure enough um the the Russians were um closing in on the area there was a big like Russian like liberation or however people want to call it. And Jakob's friends who he was with were like, we're going to go try to meet up with the Russian liberation front. Um, And Jakob was like, I don't think it's time. So Jakob stays on the farm and his three friends go off and Jakob is never able to find out what happened to them. And so it is presumed that they were caught and killed. But Jakob stays on the farm, and sure enough, the uh, the SS comes to the farm periodically, and Jakob hides in the tree wow. and is never found. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, stayed in the tree for, like, I think it was, like, up to, like, it was, like, 10 or, like, 17 hours or something, mm-hmm. and, like, can hear the SS like outside of the tree, like looking around and is just like inside of this giant hollow tree. Wow. And they never find him. They never discover the tree. 
And uh, then the Russians continued to liberate the area from the Nazis. And Jakob, when the Russians show up at the farm, uh, Jakob ends up revealing himself and um, is able to get out of Europe. Uh Oh. and when I found the story, I was like, oh, surely Ami like, has yeah. heard this story before. But I mean, there's a countless amount of these just truly incredible stories that people have yeah. of figuring out what to do during the Holocaust. And yeah, how do you, yeah. how do you, how do you feel about that? Thank you for sharing that. It's, I mean, it's like interesting because we're talking about all these like layers of reality and I feel like I've been like yeah accessing the sort of like being in the tree like in this very like spiritual layer and like this story is such a material like and also this tree in a very material way like was part of someone's survival and I feel like that's like almost like the last layer to like, that's like the ground to like the work that I've been doing is like and don't forget that the tree like literally can provide and the tree literally can be a shield and be like a accomplice in our survival, um, not just in the spiritual way. That's beautiful and heartbreaking and eerily echoing in such a intense, beautiful way. Yeah. As we kind of like get towards the end of our time unfortunately i i'm like i wish we could talk for like two more hours about this but um (laughs) but that's the time that we have right now well as one last kind of question um what why why is this an important story to tell now and i feel like you know there's obvious answers to that but i'm yeah um yeah i feel like kind of like the feeling i was having when I was like talking to my therapist and being like, I think I need to write this book. I think those, the landscape for American Jews is like shifting very rapidly. And I think um, it's hard for me as an American Jew <laughs> to understand and to keep up with. Um, and I can imagine that it's even more confusing or more subtle or, um, just like, I don't know, harder to understand if you're not Jewish. Um, and the questions of like, why, how is like anti-Semitism working right now? Like what, why is this animating um, fascists in the far right? Like how is it animating fascists in the far right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are like the ties and connections? I don't know, like what is like the, the web um, that this is like rippling for the Jewish community. Like when there's like a swastika drawn on something, like what does that really mean for Jewish people? Those were some of the questions that I wanted to like provide some type of like voice or story or narrative to. Um, And I think partially for myself, because I have just been feeling like, um, there hasn't been like the type of nuanced conversations about like anti-Semitism in the U S that I've kind of been expecting from like anti-fascist community or like anarchist mm-hmm. community. 
And that's not like a dig on anti-fascist or anarchist. I just think it's hard to understand what's happening. It's hard to see it and hard to feel it if you're not directly affected by it. Um, so, yeah. and I also really like feel passionate about like the Jewish community like has a lot of strategies for resilience and has like a long history of rebellion and resistance and yeah, standing up against fascists. And I think sometimes that history gets really, can be really lost sometimes in discourse around anti-fascism. And I think it comes from a lot of things of like this U.S. narrative of like, no, the U- the U.S. Um, army saved the day during World War II and just ignoring like Jewish partisan fighters, like all these moments of Jewish resistance. And I really wanted to like make sure that that was in the forefront. So when people are coming up with strategies for anti-fascism, Jewish story and Jewish voice isn't lost in that because like we're part of this story. Um, We're part of like the history of fascism and I want our stories to be part of the strategy for defeating fascism also. So that's my sort of like why now in this moment is to hopefully bring another perspective on, yeah, what does it mean to be Jewish during the rise of anti, uh, the rise of fascism in the U S yeah, it, it is wild how that stuff kind of gets historically talked about. Like, I don't know, um, listeners, perhaps a lot of you have listened to a previous episode of where we did a, a song book uh, written by uh, our friend Aurora called Lidlek. But it is a really beautiful and wonderful song book about, which is entirely made up of, our version is entirely made up of partisan songs. Um, and all of the stories that every time I hear a story about like the partisan movements in Europe during World War II, they are some of the coolest stories I have ever heard. (laughs) And like, yeah, it's obviously important for anti-fascist movements to not forget to talk about anti-Semitism. And also there is a lot that we can learn from the partisan fighters Mm -hmm. during World War II. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that was something because like I was just like raised on those stories in a way and then moving into like more like non-Jewish spaces that were still engaged with like this history of fascism and anti-fascism, but didn't have these stories. I think that difference started to like really feel like, wait, wait, there's something missing here. Like, (laughs) listen, like, like we actually have a lot to share on this topic, you know, and, and we're still really dealing with the impact of fascism, the rise of fascism today. So please like listen to Jewish community and like hear what we're doing and hear what we need and how this feels for us. Yeah. Well, I guess I just want to say, um, like I said, like this book is like a tapestry of, or like you said, (laughs) this book is like a tapestry of, of like self and others. And that like, I'm speaking right now on this topic, but like, there's like a lot of people who are doing really beautiful and amazing work around like Jewish anarchism right now. Um, and like particularly want to like thank my like younger sibling Naomi Weintraub who has been kind of like my partner in crime for a lot of years um, in the Rage Collective and Cindy Milstein who's been doing a lot of work around Jewish anarchist organizing um, and like a whole whole wide swath of people. So I also just want to like give whenever possible like give notice and voice to like the rise of also like a Jewish anarchist movement in the U.S. right now and across the world um, and excitement for that to become a more a more like a a tendency with an anarchism that's like known and held yeah 
Um, is there anywhere that people can find you on the internet where you would like to be found? And the answer can be no. <laughs> um, I try to hide from the internet a lot, but um, then the friends at Strangers were like, you should be on the internet a little more. <laughs> so now I have a website, um, amiweintraub.com. And you can find me there and connect to my Instagram and email. Um, and yeah, email is uh, a good way to connect to me. Um, and I yeah, want to have more conversations with people about all of these topics. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, do you have any upcoming events? Like are you doing any kind of like speaking events or, or tours for promotion for, for the book? Um, I'm in the process right now of trying to plan a book tour. Um, I, like I said, I want this book to really be like a conversation starter and to sort of bring people out who've been wanting to have this type of conversation about like Jewishness and ghosts and anti-fascism. Um, so I'm hoping to create, um, some type of tour where I can go to info shops or synagogues or people's living rooms and we can just have these types of conversations together so I'm still in the planning stage so if anyone who's listening is excited by this what I've talked about on the podcast or this idea of having these conversations um please reach out to me and it's still possible to like put um locations into the tour and I'd love to come and meet people who are excited to have these types of conversations wonderful um and uh, we will link to your website in the show notes. So folks, if you want to get in touch with Ami about, about the speaking tour or anything else, then visit the show notes. And just so folks know, um, Ami's book is, goes up for pre-order. It should, it should be up for pre-order currently. Um, so head to tangledwilderness.org to pre-order a copy of it. it the pre, all the pre-orders are going to come with a beautiful um, silk-screened poster of art from the book um, where you can see featured some wonderful and whimsical birch trees. Um, and then the book uh, comes out for regular release uh, August 1st through tangledwilderness.org um, or wherever AK Books distributes books. So in our final segment of the podcast, we I do this segment called the word of the month where I have researched a little bit about a, the etymology of a word and I ask you about it. And if you know about it, then I tell you about it. And if you don't know about it, then I tell you about it. Perfect. And <laughs> I, I chose three different words that I thought were particularly fitting for uh, this piece. And those words are birch tree and ghost. I love those words. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know anything about the etymological origins of any of these words? No, not at all. Cool. Birch in the, you know, in the long lineage of etymologies, there's, you know, like the old English Burke, there's Bjork, there is uh Burke John, there is I think in Gaelic it's Bay. Um, but I'm maybe remembering that one wrong. Um, interestingly, Bjork, the Swedish Icelandic name, also means birch or birch tree. I, sh- I should go listen to some Bjork music now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they are all ultimately from 
the a Latin root for bereg, which means to shine mm. bright, uh, which is a reference to the bark of the birch tree. I assume everyone has seen a birch tree, but maybe you haven't. Go look at a birch tree. And then a uh, tree ultimately comes from the word deru, which, you know, how you get from deru to tree is, it's, it's, there's a lot of steps between deru, deru mm-hmm. and tree. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, but it is a Proto-Germanic word, which means firm, solid, and steadfast, mm-hmm. which with special words for you know, wooden tree or wooden objects. Um, but deru, firm, solid, and steadfast really being the, the root of it. And then the last piece, which I promise this is going to paint a fun picture, is ghost. And similarly for ghost, we have this this long list of words of, of the like journey from this root word to get to ghost, like a lot of a lot of words etymologies. But the root word that I want to highlight for this for today is I'm going to back up. And it, uh, interesting, like I don't really know much Yiddish, but um, mm. I think the Yiddish word for birch is beriz, and which also shares a root with uh, behreg. The last piece of the puzzle ghost mm-hmm. um, and its long journey from the root word to ghost one of its roots is a the old high german word giskin which is related to an old english word skinen or old high german skinan which means to shine hmm. so uh... <laughs> Uh, some really fun <laughs> synchronicity between <laughs> birch oh and God. ghosts. Oof. Wow. And like the tree as this like solid, firm sort of container for this more elusive shine. Like that's kind of what I'm feeling. Wow. Yeah. That's so eerie and beautiful. <laughs> I know. We spent, we spent a lot of this... Uh, podcast talking about like synchronous moments and yeah <laughs> you're like I'm just gonna drop this last little bit of <laughs> bizarre eerie synchronicity which yeah I was saying like I'm like feeling just like tingly in my feet and kind of like this firmness in myself like hearing you describe these words that I've been like writing and thinking about for so long and to kind of like reveal like these aspects of it just feels like a gift so thank you yeah of course and thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thank you for writing this incredible book that uh that everyone's gonna get to read really soon (laughs) yeah yeah thank you for having me and for yeah believing in my work and yeah being part of this process i i really enjoyed working with you and all the strangers folks cool well Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go tell someone about it. Whisper its name into the night, tell some trees about it, or listen to it with some ghosts. Also, you can rate and review and like and subscribe or whatever the algorithm calls for. Feed it like a hungry god. But really just tell people about it. It's the main way that people hear about the show and honestly one of the best ways to support it. However, if you want to support us in other sillier ways that don't involve feeding a nameless and mysterious entity, 
consider supporting the show financially by subscribing to our Patreon. If you subscribe to our Patreon at $10 a month, we will mail to you a zine version of the pieces that you hear here every month, anywhere in the world. You can also get access to an archive of of old Strangers content, as well as discounts on things like t-shirts and books we publish. Find us at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. If you are listening to this on Friday, June 30th, then you still have some amount of time uh, left to hop onto the Penumbra City Kickstarter. Um, It has been overwhelmingly successful thanks to everyone that has backed our Kickstarter so far. Um, Penumbra City is a tabletop role-playing game that members of the Strangers Collective are developing, um, and we have far surpassed our funding goal, which is amazing, and we have unlocked most of our stretch goals. And you can absolutely buy this, this, this game later, but you should check out the Kickstarter now because uh, backers of the Kickstarter have access to exclusive stickers, art prints, um, there's an exclusive lower Kickstarter price, and since we have unlocked three of the stretch goals, uh, you also get two extra books if you buy at any at, if you back the project at any level. So even at like the digital level or the print level, you'll get digital versions of two extra books, um, including a novella by Margaret Kiljoy uh, set in Penumbra City, as well as a campaign module that I will have to <laughs> write sometime in the next year, and as well as a like 11 by 17 poster size full color map uh, by Robin and Cassandra. Um, We also, uh, as you just heard about, um, can go pre-order Ami's book to the ghosts who are still living right now on our website, tangledwilderness.org. The pre-order comes with a really incredible um, color 11 by 17 poster um, that was designed by Cassandra. Um, so go check out the website, pre-order the book. It is truly incredible, and I think you're just going to love it. Our theme music is by Margaret Kiljoy. Our zine layout is by Cassandra, and thanks to the lovely mountain goblins that mail out the feature every month. That's all my plugs, except for a very special series of shout-outs to these wonderful people who have helped make this podcast, as well as so many other projects possible. Thank you, Trickster, Princess Miranda, Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Oxalis, Janice and Odell, Paige, Allie, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Cat J, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas the Dog. Thank you so much for your support. It means so much to us and has allowed us to get so much done as a collective. And lastly, a lot of these features on the podcast come from listeners like you. So if you feel like a stranger that would like to find their story a home in this tangled wilderness, consider submitting it. Maybe it will call someone home. Next month, we have an interview with Shane Burley, Anna Elena Torres, and Kenyon Zimmer about Jewish anarchism and their new book, With Freedom in Our Ears. Stay well. We hope you come back.